Okay, we are in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, that is page 944 in those blue Bibles if you're using one of those. And you don't have a personal copy of God's Word on you. I'll ask you to turn there. We're continuing through. We begin a message in verses 9 through 13, so this is part 2. And what we're going to do is we're just going to pick up right where we left off, which was at verse 9. Verse 9, we were looking at verses 9 through 13 here. We're just going to pick right where we left off and pick up right where we left off. I'm actually going to read verses 1 through 13 of Romans chapter 8 for the context of the passage. So, if you would let your eyes glance down at verse 1 of chapter 8 and follow along as I read. The Apostle Paul writes these words in verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, wow, some of you remembered. Remember, that's an amen verse. That's a hallelujah praise verse. And I think it would be awesome if every time we heard that verse, we gave a, a shout-out to the Lord. That's something worth getting excited about, certainly. So, again, we'll try it. There, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Yes, verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's our text, or all of our text this morning. We're going to be looking specifically at 9 through 13. We looked at 9 last week. We'll actually look at 10 through 13 today. Inside of your bulletins, you'll find an outline. So we're simply going to, same outline as last week, we're going to continue to consider three important facts concerning the Holy Spirit. We're doing that so that we might grow in our understanding of, appreciation for, and dependence upon Him, the Holy Spirit. Last week's point that we looked at was in verse 9, the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, without exception, dwells in all who belong to Christ. I'll say a few words about that in a moment. Number two, it is through the indwelling Spirit that life will be given to the Christian's mortal body. That we'll find in verses 10 and 11. And then finally, number three, and this is a, a very important passage for you to consider in your Christian sanctification. We'll talk about that more. It is by the indwelling Spirit that Christians fulfill their obligation to the Spirit by persistently putting to death the sinful deeds of the body. And that we will find in verses 12 and 13. You guys ready? 
Okay, we're going to move a little fast today. We looked at this last week, but the bottom line of verse 9 is that the one who belongs to Christ is also the one in whom the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit dwells. All of those terms are used in this text to describe the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, then you are, according to this section, you are no longer in the flesh. You are no longer in the flesh, but in the Spirit. That's what it says. That's what he says in verse 9, which, as I've said several times, does not mean that you have yet rid yourself of this corrupted and fallen flesh, right? You haven't got rid of it yet. So it doesn't mean that, that you're not in the flesh. Rather, it means as a Christian, your life is no longer governed or ruled by your flesh or that old sinful nature. Okay, you with me so far? But now as a saved, born again, born of the Spirit person, John chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, You must be born of above, born of the Spirit to be saved. As that type of person, you are now governed, guided, and empowered by the very Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of life, the Spirit of life, as Paul calls him in verse 2, or the Spirit who gives life, gives life. That is the Spirit, as we learned earlier in the beginning of chapter 8, the Spirit who has liberated us in Christ from the power and authority of sin and death, assuring us that we are completely free from condemnation, as we read in verse 1. And yet, in light of all that good news, and it is good news for those who have been born again, who those who have the Spirit dwelling inside of them, for those who are saved and belong to Christ... And yet, in in light of all of that, we know that Christians, like everyone else in this world, still experience death, physical death, right? Right? Our physical bodies, contaminated and corrupted by sin, still succumb or give way to the penalty and curse of physical death. That is in one way that we are not different than the unbeliever. We all die. We all die. We're all subject to death. So knowing that, one might ask, does the life then that the Spirit gives, that Paul's been talking about here, the one who indwells us, the Spirit of God, the one who belongs to Christ, is that life then somehow ended by the grave? Does that bring an end to this incredible work of the spirit of life, the spirit of God that dwells in us? And the answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. One Bible commentator just puts it this way. He says, the life that the spirit gives is by no means ended by the grave, for the presence of the spirit, remember who this is, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of life, the presence of the spirit guarantees that the bodies of believers will be raised from physical death. And that, beloved, brings me to verses 10 and 11. 
kind of the sequence of events here. And the second point in the outline, or the second important fact concerning the Holy Spirit, and that is simply this. It is through the indwelling Spirit that life will be given to the Christian's mortal body. Okay, look back at the text, Romans chapter 8, verse 10. Paul says this, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, we're going to work through this. We have some kind of technical things to work through this morning, but so let me first start here. I want you to notice something. In verse 9 and 11, Paul refers to the Spirit dwelling in the Christian. Do you see that in your text? Verse 9 and 11, it's the Spirit who's dwelling in the Christian. But in verse 10, Paul makes a reference here to Christ being in the believer. Do you see that? But if Christ is in you? So Paul's transition from the idea of the Holy Spirit dwelling in the believer, verse 9, to Christ dwelling in the believer, verse 10, back to the Spirit dwelling in verse 11, should not be taken, listen, should not be taken to mean that Christ and the Holy Spirit are one and the same. They are not one and the same. They are not the same persons. Okay? One God, three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. They, it should also not mean that these terms are interchangeable, that Paul just uses these terms to say the same thing. It's not. These are, these are not the same thing. But I'm going to quote somebody which I found to be helpful as you see Paul just moving back and forth from the Spirit dwelling inside of us to Christ being in us. And then he says this, Christ and the Spirit are so closely related in communicating to believers the benefits of salvation that Paul can move from one to the other almost unconsciously. In other words, he just moves back and forth because in the mind of Paul, and it should be the case in our minds as well, it is both Christ and His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that are communicating us to us, bringing to us, imparting to us the benefits of our salvation. Both indwell us. He goes on to say, the indwelling Spirit and the indwelling Christ are distinguishable. I can distinguish between the two. You should distinguish between the two, but they are inseparable. So when it comes to Christians and their salvation, you will never find one without the other. It just reinforces, again, the idea that we find in verse 9. Whoever belongs to Christ also has the Spirit dwelling inside of them. Whoever belongs to Christ abides in Christ, and Christ abides in them. You with me? So just a distinction, just to make that distinction. You'll find other passages in the New Testament where it talks about Christ in you, right? Christ in you. We're in Christ. Christ is in us. We're in the Spirit. The Spirit is in us, all right? Now, the next thing I want you to notice is that the word Spirit, and this one might get a little more complex, the word Spirit in verse 10, look at your Bibles. Do you see that first? Do you see that word Spirit in verse 10? It's capitalized in the English Standard Version, meaning the S is a big S, <laughs> okay? If you have a new King James, it's also capitalized. Why? Because that's indicating, at least in that translation, that Paul is making another reference, as he has over and over again here in this chapter, to the Holy Spirit. And you see this, there's references to the Spirit or the Holy Spirit. So he, because it's a person, it's capitalized. This is, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit here, at least in the ESV. But not all translations capitalize Spirit here. Maybe you have one right now. If you have a new international version, NIV, 
It's not capitalized. It's a small s. Anybody have one of those? Okay. And maybe you have a New American Standard Bible. It's not capitalized. It's a small s. I want to I teach you something here to help you understand. If you don't know, maybe you know already, but and that's great. But for those of you who don't know, I want to show you something when it comes to the Scriptures and you're trying to interpret them. Um, here's the first thing. The original Greek language from which these are, our English translations come, okay? We have manuscript copies of the originals, and in this case, it's in Greek. Greek did not use capital letters, okay? So when it comes to this passage, spirit is not capitalized one way or another. The, and so the, when the people are translating that word spirit, those who give us our English translations, they have to make a decision about what exactly this is referring to. So, so by that I mean every time you see spirit capitalized, and as a reference to the Holy Spirit, realize that that was a decision the translators had to make. They had to determine from the context, is the writer talking about the spirit, or is he just talking about spirit in general, such as the human spirit. You with me? Okay. Now, most of the time, the decision to capitalize or not to capitalize, meaning it's a reference to the Holy Spirit or it's a reference to something else, like the human spirit, uh, most of the time it's, it's very clear, crystal clear what the decision is. But that's not always the case. Sometimes there can be a debate about which way to render that, whether it be a capital S or a small s, and changing, is it the Holy Spirit or is it just the spirit of a, of a man, or is it even, it can refer to breath, uh, things like that, of that nature. So, the Greek word translated spirit, as I said, can also refer to human spirit, and, and other translations leave it a small s because they think that Paul is referring to the human spirit rather than the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? Now, why do they do that? Because, I'm going to show you, they see a contrast in verse 10. They see a contrast, and they, they believe that this completes the contrast better. And so, I'll, I'll show you that. So, they understand Paul to be saying, look at verse 10, that while the human body, he's clearly referring to the human body, right? While the human body is dead, by that he means subject to death and destined for it because of sin, while the human body is dead, subject to death and destined for it because of sin, right? We know that sin brought death into humanity. We already learned that in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Sin brought death to humanity. In direct contrast to that then, they see a contrast here between these, these things, then the human spirit, okay, so we have the human body, the human spirit then, and in most of those translations that make spirit small s, they have the word alive. The human spirit is alive. Do you have an NIV? Someone did back there. Do you see that? Do you see what I'm talking about? You want to confirm that? The human spirit is alive. They don't say the human spirit is life, do they? They don't even say human. They say spirit. But because it's small s, they're referring to the human spirit. The reason they say alive instead of life is because that would be too strong of a statement to say that the human spirit is life. The human spirit is not life, but alive they use, and, and they think that they're completing the contrast here, so the human spirit is alive. Why? Because of righteousness. There's the other contrast. What righteousness is that? 
Well, clearly that must be the imputed righteousness or the righteousness that is credited to us, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. All right? So here, you with me so far, kind of? Those who translate the S small would say there's a contrast, and Paul's just simply saying, listen, the physical body is dead, destined to die because of sin, but your spirit, my friend, is alive because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You with me? I don't think that's what's going on. Uh, I, I think it's quite possible, certainly. It's within the realms of, of interpretation there to accept that translation, uh, that Paul is saying that. And many good Bible teachers take that position, but I am persuaded that, as the ESV translators were, that spirit here refers to the Holy Spirit. That's why they capitalize the S. Uh, not the human spirit. And here's a few reasons why. In the preceding verses, as I've already told you, verses 1 through 9, Paul uses the word spirit eight times. Eight times. Okay, so 1 through 8, running up to verse 9, eight times he uses this word, and every time it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And then, right after verse 10, we have verse 11, Paul uses the word spirit twice there. Guess what? Both times it refers to the Holy Spirit, no doubt about it. To me, based on the context and the flow of what Paul is communicating, I think it's somewhat strange to interpret this word or reference to Spirit here in a different sense than how Paul has clearly used it in all the surrounding verses. That's my first argument. But here's a stronger one. Earlier in verse 2, Paul refers to the Holy Spirit as Spirit of life. Look back at your text. Do you see it there? That's a reference to the Holy Spirit. He refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of life. In verse 10, the literal translation is not Spirit is alive. That is not right. That's not the most literal translation. It literally says Spirit is life. The Spirit is life. Guess what? It's the same exact Greek word for life that he used in verse 2. It's the same word. So there it's translated life, but in some other translations they change it and translate it alive, They're kind of forced to do that because they believe that he's referring to the human spirit. It would be too much to say the human spirit is life, so they say the human spirit is alive. But uh, I'm going to go with the more literal translation here. I think that it fits better, uh, and I think it, it fits better with everything Paul is saying and even makes most sense of what Paul is saying. So, and this, I'll show you this. I think verse 11 then, when I understand that the Spirit is life, then I find verse 11 explaining verse 10. Uh, Other translators, when they say the Spirit is alive, they see Paul saying something different in verse 10 and then saying something else in verse 11. Well, your spirit is alive, and oh, by the way, your body is going to be alive one day. I don't don't think that's what's going on. I, I think 10 and 11 go together. And so I stick with that. Translation, spirit is life, just as the ESV has it. So let me bring this all together now. Look at verse 11. 10, we have 10. Then we have, and 10 says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now 11. If the spirit of him, him's a reference to the Father, God the Father. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, that's a reference to the resurrection, right? If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, watch, will also give what? Life. Life to your what? Mortal bodies, which is just another way of him getting at what he just said, that your bodies are dead because of sin. Your bodies are subject to death and destined to die because of sin. And how will the one who raised Jesus from the dead give you life? How will this occur? Through his spirit who dwells in you. And who is that spirit? The spirit of life, the spirit that is life. So the way I would explain verses 10 and 11 is even though the body of the believer is dead because of sin, the Holy Spirit is life, all right? And the presence of the Holy Spirit in you cannot but result in life, resurrection life for the body of the believer which he inhabits. So one writer says this, it's a simple point, really. I'm just, I had to go through all that to show you how I got there. Uh, one writer says this, The Spirit's life-giving power is not restricted, no way, by the mortality of the body, but overcomes and transforms that mortality into the immortality of eternal life in a resurrected body. Another one adds this concerning this text. Paul is teaching that the believer... Although still bound to an earthly, mortal body, has residing, living within him or her the spirit, the spirit, the power of new spiritual life, which conveys both that life in two ways, in the sense of deliverance from condemnation that is enjoyed now. We read about that in verses 1 through 2, right? That spirit liberates us from the law or power of sin and death. So he he takes us out of that realm of condemnation and that life is conveyed to us through that spirit of life in the future resurrection or in the future resurrection life that will bring transformation to the body itself. Okay? So that's it for that point. It's simple. It's really just the fact that you have the spirit of life dwelling in you. This, This life is transformational in multiple ways. It brings you life with God. It brings life to that mortal body so that you, your person, can enjoy the life that you have in Christ forever, forever. And nothing can keep you from that, including your body that is destined to die because of sin. With me? Okay. Now to the final point, and this one's a... uh, They're all important, but this one I especially want you to pay attention to. Third important fact concerning the Holy Spirit that we need to consider so that we might grow in our understanding of, appreciation for, and dependence upon the Spirit. Three, it is by the indwelling Spirit that Christians fulfill their obligation to the Spirit by persistently putting to death the sinful deeds of the body. Look back at the text with me. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Paul says this, So then, brothers, we are debtors. The New American Standard Bible translates that under obligation. Both are good. We are debtors. We are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All right, another translation of verse 12 in the New International Version translates it this way. Therefore, brothers... We have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according 
to it. So Paul draws a conclusion here based on what he has already said concerning the Holy Spirit. The bottom line is this. As believers, for the time being, as I've already said and Paul has already made clear, we still retain our fallen and corrupted flesh, right? We still retain that. We haven't rid ourselves of that yet. We haven't got rid of that. And or our old sinful nature. You might refer to it that way. But by the power and authority of the indwelling spirit, we are no longer debtors to the flesh or obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh or render obedience or service to it. No longer. We are no longer under obligation to the flesh. Rather, what that is, or what Paul implies here, although he doesn't go on to say it, but what is implied by verses 12 and 13 is that as Christians, instead of being indebted to the flesh or under obligation to the flesh, we are debtors to the Spirit or obligated to the Spirit to live according to the Holy Spirit because we, as Paul has already carefully explained in Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23... Any of you guys remember that section of God's Word? Yes. Uh, Well, let me tell you, according to that, we are now under a new master. We are under a new master. That's Romans 6. We are no longer slaves of sin, but as Christians, we have become slaves of God. That's the terminology there, slaves of righteousness. And as slaves of God, We fulfill our obligation to the indwelling Spirit of God through His superior power to overcome our flesh. As we persist in putting to death or killing off the sinful deeds of the body, or to say it another way, the sin that still remains in us and continues to frustrate and to some degree, hinder our walk with God. That was a lot. I hope you got that, because it's important. It's important. In fact, I don't have a bulletin up here, but let me grab one. This is, uh, this is actually what we're referring to. I don't know if you know, but we're referring to this, kind of these ideas, this thinking. On the back of your bulletin, we have a just a, a brief outline of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he accomplished on behalf of sinners. And, and the very last point there says this, someday, this is part of the hope of the gospel, someday God will remove you from this life, this is for the Christian, by either death or Christ's triumphant return, right? One way or another, you're going to be removed from this earth either by death or Christ coming back to get you. And at that point, beloved, your struggle, my struggle against sin will end. It will end. Glory be to God, it will finally end. Which means we still have a struggle in this life. Sometimes it's harder than other times, but it's always there, dogging you. Huh? Right? Trying to ruin you. Destroy you, destroy those around you, mess up your relationships. It's always there. And then it goes on to say, at that point, 
you will enjoy unhindered fellowship with your creator, redeemer, and friend at that point. Why? Because you are a new you on the inside, but the old you is still existing. This, you still have this flesh, this flesh, that, that part of you that has not yet been redeemed, that part of you where sin has ruined, tainted, destroyed, and corrupted, and the flesh operating through your body continues to dog you every step of the way. And dog me as well. But one day I'm getting a new glorified, resurrected body because the spirit who dwells in me, the spirit of life, will bring to me immortality in a transformed, resurrected body. At that point, the new me will match the outward me completely. I'll be completely made new. My salvation will have been brought to its final stage, and I will never wrestle with sin again, nor will it get in my way at all, not only with my relationship with one and all of you, but it won't get in the way of my relationship with my God. You see what I'm saying? That's what we're talking about. That's the hope, all right? But what do we do in the meantime? Just suck it up. Just say, hey, I guess this is the way it has to be, you know, I'm just, I got this awful, rotten flesh, nothing I can do about it. That's not true. That's not true, beloved. According to our text this morning, uh, I, so what I want to do is I want to talk to you a little bit about this putting to death the deeds of the body by the power of the indwelling spirit. But first, a few comments concerning verse 13, okay? And that's what I want to talk to you about, putting to death the deeds of the body. In this case, we know it's the sinful deeds of the body uh, by the power of the indwelling spirit. But look back at verse 13. Here's what Paul says. In verse 13, if you live, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, this verse, leave it up there for a second, please, brother. This verse has been understood and explained in various ways. But some have even suggested that it supports the idea that a Christian can lose their salvation. That is, watch, that is, if you continue to live according to the flesh, you will die. I mean, that's what it says, right? Uh, or be eternally separated from God. That's the way you could understand death there. But I reject that. I reject that interpretation of this passage. And this is one of the dangers, just again to warn you, this is one of the dangers of taking passages uh, and then using them to establish a a position without also taking in the rest of what the Word of God says. Uh, Because I could come to this passage all by itself, and if I read that, I could walk away, this by itself, I could walk away thinking, Paul is warning, he's telling Christians, listen, listen guys, you want to go ahead and live according to the flesh, that's fine, but you're going to die. You, in effect, will lose your salvation. But if you want to live by the Spirit, you'll put to death the deeds of the body, then you'll live, and that means you'll have eternal salvation. I could walk away from that, I don't, thinking that, but the problem is, I would have to reject that understanding of this text that he's actually telling Christians they could lose, real bona fide Christians, that they could lose their salvation based on just all the other passages I know concerning the eternal security of the believer and the fact that the true believer will, the true believer will persevere in the faith. So, for instance, you could, I'm not going to cover them right now, but you could go to John 10, 28 and 29. You could look at that passage where Jesus is talking about the eternal security of the believer, or Philippians 1.6, Paul's confidence in the, in the fact that what God has started in the believer, he will certainly bring to an end, or 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. 
Uh, you can look at there what the Apostle Peter says. Or how about Jude? We had it on the screen earlier this morning. There's only one chapter, verses 24 and 25. Uh, that, so anyway, you could, those are just a few. There are many more that we could go to. And in light of all those, there's, there's absolutely no way that a Christian, a true bona fide Christian, can lose their salvation. They can't. There's always the question of whether they were ever really saved, but the true believer cannot lose their salvation. So here, how do I understand verse 13? I believe the first part of 13, all all Paul is really doing is he's simply stating a truth. He's just stating a truth that everyone's aware of now, or they should be aware of, as Paul's made clear, concerning the life and destiny of the unbeliever. That's, that's the first part of it. This, he's talking about an unbeliever. If you live according to the flesh, if that is your way of life, if that is true of you, then you demonstrate that you are still in the flesh. And if you are still in the flesh, then as Paul has made clear, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of life, does not dwell in you. Verse 9. And your destiny, therefore, is death or eternal separation from God. Simple. I mean, that's, that's a truism. But, opposite of that, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the sinful deeds of the body, which every believer is obligated and empowered to do because of the indwelling Spirit, then you know what? You demonstrate or give evidence to the fact that you are no longer in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Otherwise, how would you be putting to death the sinful deeds of the body? It's not possible apart from the Spirit at work in your life, nor would you want to. You wouldn't have any motivation to even do it. So all those things prove that your destiny is life or eternal life in the presence of God. And then, because of that, you can be certain that you will enter into eternal life because you give evidence of truly being saved. And so when I, when I read it that way, then verse 14 also makes sense to me because I see verse 14, which I'm saving for next week because it enters into another section talking about our adoption as children of God. When you just read verse 14 based on what I just said, Paul says this, verse 14. Right after he says that, he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. In other words, Listen, all who are putting to death the sinful deeds of the body demonstrate that they are being led by the Spirit of God, and all who are being led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And that takes them into another uh, couple of passages about what it means and what it is to be a son of God and, and how that plays in with being the Spirit of God. One writer says, or with the Spirit of God, one writer says this, those, concerning this section, those and those alone who by the Spirit put to death the disgraceful deeds of the body, those and those alone are able to rejoice in the fact that they are being led by the Spirit and therefore will truly live. Okay? This is really, to me, more about your assurance or the assurance you shouldn't have. Again, like I said last week, if, 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 if there's no process where you are growing in grace, you are putting to death the sinful deeds of the body. There's no change in your life. Then you are, you are being described in the first part of verse 13. If you are still living according to the flesh, why do you think you're going to live? Why do you think you're going to have life with God? Why would you think that? You demonstrate, your life demonstrates that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of life does not dwell in you. 
okay? But the opposite is also true. As I see the Spirit of God at work in my life, as I begin to put to death the sinful deeds of the body, that is a demonstration to me that the Spirit of God does dwell in me. And if He does dwell in me, then I know by the fact that I'm putting to death the sinful deeds of the body that I am going to live. I'm going to live with God forever. So, back to the subject of putting to death the deeds of the body by the power of the indwelling spirit. Or, or let me say it another way, the spirit-empowered work of killing sin. You think sometimes the Bible sounds very violent? It is. It is. We'll get all worked up about violence and stuff. Read the Bible. It's a very violent book. There's a lot of violent terminology in here. You know, he doesn't say, you know, put your sin in a corner. Uh, kind of talk it out, you know. Talk your sin away from you. No, it uses very strong terms. Put it to death. All right? Okay, let's talk about that. Kill your sin. Kill? Yes. Yes, yeah. Uh, when I started in Romans, let me back up a little bit. When I started in Romans 6, I said that we are now introduced to a new section of Romans, chapter 6 through 8, and I explained that the, to- the primary topic of Romans 6 through 8 is the topic of Christian sanctification, Christian sanctification. So we went from condemnation to justification, now to sanctification. And at the time, I gave you a definition of Christian sanctification that comes right out of a book by a man called Wayne Grudem. It's systematic theology. It's this thick. I showed it to you. I encourage that it would be a good resource for you in growing in your faith. Um, and this is the definition that comes right out of that book from him. Here is your Christian sanctification or progressive sanctification. It would be defined in this way. Sanctification is a progressive work, this is magic, boom, uh, of God and man. Okay, the, I want... Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man. And I told you at the time when I brought this up that I would come back to the subject of it being and man, that that was an important note. If you left that out, you'd be missing something very important. If you left out God, you'd be in trouble. Sanctification work is not a work of man. It is a work of God first and foremost and always, but it includes us. And that work makes us more and more free from sin now, remember, we've been liberated from the power of sin, from its enslaving power, but when, that, when he's talking about free from sin, free from its presence in our lives, free from us practicing it, those kind of things, it makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Do you remember that? Or do you see it? you understand it? Well, let's look at that. It is important, again, as I said, to note that you as a Christian play a vital role in your sanctification. And we're going to see that right here in this text. You as a Christian play a vital role in your sanctification to you becoming more and more free from sin and like Christ in your actual life. You play an important role. By that I mean, just in case that's not clear enough, you can't just sit back and relax and let go and let God. Uh, That's a phrase, unfortunately, has been used in this context that the way you you get change in your life is you just got to let go and let God. That's not accurate. You can't let go and let God, and if that's the way it's being understood, like I'm just going to sit back and God's going to do something to me or do something for me apart from my participation 
or willful engagement in this process of sanctification. That is absolutely not the case. That is not how God has designed for our sanctification to work itself out. Like, I mean, that would be so awesome if I, like, I could just go into a booth or, or, I don't know, maybe if I just sit here long enough, God just, as I'm sitting here, God's just changing me. That's not the process, beloved. Um, by the way, if you think that's how church works, I think that's how some people think church works. If I just come there, I'll be changed. That's not true. Uh, yes, you do have to come here, but then you have to actually engage with the speaker, engage with the word, have your minds ready, be listening, be thinking about what the text is saying. Then you have to be thinking about it, meditating on it, and applying it through the power of the Spirit that dwells in you to your life. There's a whole process where you're engaged. If you disengage, then this is just a wasted hour for you in some sense. It's wasted. You have to engage. This is why we talk about you know, being ready, coming to church ready. That means you know, not staying out late last night or so on and so forth, and you're all sleepy and you can't. How are you going to engage if your eyes aren't even open? Nothing this morning. That's awesome. Um, but it's, it's going to be harder. You certainly won't be able to. So it's a process, right? So listen, you can't remain passive. It's not going to be done to you or for you. But rather, it is slowly achieved as we, in total reliance upon the Spirit, work hard, work hard to fulfill our obligation to the Spirit by persistently putting to death the sinful deeds of the body, killing them. Killing them, yeah. I mean, I, it's just, you know, we get so aggressive about so many other things, so violent about, you know, like just driving on the freeways. I wish we would take some of that violence and apply it towards our sin because we would be much better off. In a sense, that would be some righteous indignation. We get so indignant about so many things. How about this? Get indignant about your sin. Get upset about that and go after it. Not the person driving in the lane next to you. I just had some bad experiences this weekend, that's all. So, uh, Okay, so listen. While it is the Spirit of God that gives us the ability and desire to reject our sin, I want to keep driving this home, it is we... It is we as Christians who must take the initiative to put our sin to death. And now you're asking how, right? Right? You're asking how. Well, here's some hows. These are just general concepts now. How? By fully resisting everything we know to be wrong or wicked. I want you to just think through these as you hear them. Do you fully resist everything you know to be wrong or wicked? Or do you allow those things to be a part of your lives to some degree? By executing every manifestation of sin as soon as it arises, anger, lust, the desire to gossip, the desire not to be kind, the desire to strike out, the desire to hurt, do you execute that manifestation of your sin as soon as it arises, or do you let it linger? 
Do you let it sit? Do you let it bubble? Do you let it get worse? By not allowing ourselves to even think about how we might satisfy the lust of the flesh or the sinful desires of our fallen nature. Not even thinking about how we might satisfy those things. Not fantasizing about them. Not daydreaming about them. Giving no space in our minds to the sinful deeds of our body. By continually holding our lives up to the mirror of God's word and letting it expose the wickedness that still remains in us. Hey, any of you think that you don't still have wickedness remaining in you? Because some do. Uh, With all the nonsense that we hear from media and all this, and like I said before many times, Disney shows, how wonderful you are, blah, blah, blah. We can start buying into that nonsense and not thinking that, hey, we're, we got wickedness in us. The, we have, we're not rid ourselves of this flesh yet. So it's not just my spouse that has wickedness in them. I have wickedness in me as well. Not just my children, but I do as well. Not just my siblings, but I do as well. Not just my boss, but I do as well. And here's the thing. The Word of God is awesome at this. It acts like a mirror that when you let it come before you and you read it and meditate upon it like a mirror does, it reflects all that wickedness that's within you. See, this is, a, this is one of the reasons I'm convinced that Satan's greatest strategy is to keep you from ever getting into the Word of God. You stay out of that book, then you can go on looking, feeling like, hey, I'm not doing too bad. But I expose myself to that book, and all of a sudden, oh, man, yeah, woo! I am messed up. Messed up. Hey, I didn't even know it was messed up over here. But clearly I am messed up. I don't, my wife does not align with that. Right? So I need to expose myself to the wickedness that is in my heart. One of the ways to do that is through exposing myself to the Word of God, beloved, reading it regularly. And then once it's exposed, then I must denounce it and hate it for what it is and wage war against it. Wage war against it. Go on the hunt. Guys are so serious right now. That's okay. This is a serious topic. How about this? Here's another way to get at this, killing our sin. How about opening ourselves up to other Christians who truly care about us and then ask them to point out in our lives areas that need to be addressed like our sinful attitudes or behaviors or actions that we need to begin killing, that we need to no longer allow to freely live in us and manifest themselves through us. How about that? That's crazy talk, Jeremy. No, no, that's sanctifying talk, beloved. That's what the church is here for. What do you think all those passages are there for? Exhort one another. Exhort? Why would I have to exhort you? Why would I have to rebuke you? Why would that be necessary? What's going on? Because of sin. Because we're all messing and struggling with sin. So the church comes alongside one another in a very safe, hopefully safe environment. We all know that our 
Our standing before God is not based on my sin level for the day. That's not where my standing before God. My standing before God is based on Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his righteousness, and the forgiveness that I have in him. So now I'm free. If I tell my brother or sister, hey, I am, I'm a mess here, or I ask them, better yet, will you tell me where I'm a mess? I don't have to worry about being ashamed and all those things because I know he's a mess too or she's a mess too. But our our messiness is not what we're basing our righteousness with Christ. It's the righteousness of Christ that makes us right with God. So we're free now. We're free to have this conversation. We're free to be transparent with one another. We're free to tell each other our issues or to let someone else tell us our issues. And do we want to do that? Why not? Why wouldn't you want someone to do that? Hey, you ever wish someone would have told you had a burger, a booger on your face and you didn't know it? Do you wish they would have told you that instead of just walking by going, hey, nice, yeah, hi, yeah, good, good, good to see you. Just moving on to the next person. Don't you wish they would have had the courage to say, dude, you got one right here. You need to wipe it off. Don't you wish they would have done that? Right. I, I, that's what I would like. I don't know what you guys are thinking right now, but that's what I would like. I would, I, yeah, I would like you to tell me that if I had it on my face. But no, that's what I need. I need my brothers and sisters speaking into my life, right? My spouse. We're typically, I, I'm sorry, brother. We're typically, I know I'm going too long because we have communion, but we're typically telling our spouse everything that's wrong with them. How about this? Ask them. Well, I don't have to ask them. They're always telling me. I understand. But maybe we could have a nice conversation where we say to each other, listen, we are both messed up people. That's who we are. And we're not different than anybody else. This is the flesh. And we got to get together and fight this thing for the sake of our marriage, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of our, 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 the, our lives together, for the sake of our children. We got to fight this thing. We got to come together. So let's help each other in this process. I'm not so that I tell you not to tear you down or you tell me to tear me down. But hey, what do you see? Do you see stuff in my life that I need to work on? Do you see areas in my life where sin has got me because I want to go after it. I want to hunt that sin down and kill it. And then they say, yeah, I see some areas in your life. And then you ask for permission. Now, can I tell you the areas in your life? And this is carefully done, obviously. Um, But I, I think with brothers and sisters in Christ, this is also done. I have, I have some dear brothers here that I know I could talk to them and they could talk to me. They could tell me something that's going on in my life that they think does not align with the word of God and I could tell them and have something that does not align with the word of God. We're not tearing each other down, we're building each other up. All right, so we got to... There are other things. I won't use this passage. I won't go to it. But So these are all the, 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 these are the things we do. We, you know, we attack it. We go after it. We expose ourselves to the word of God. We recognize that it's there. We got we to gotta, we gotta, we gotta put it down. We got to make a conscious decision to say no instead of allowing these things to continue to bubble up in our lives. And by the way, we can do it now because we have the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. All right? But uh, second... There's other things we could do on this over here that's uh, on a positive nature. We can fill our minds with things that will make it very difficult for sin to thrive. Huh? 
So like when Paul says in Philippians, don't put it up, brother, but when he says in Philippians, hey, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, these things you should be thinking on. Think on these things, right? So, beloved, what dominates and controls our mind is what will dominate and control our behavior. So here's my question. What do you spend your time thinking about? What do you spend your time thinking about? I won't think about it. I'm not looking for an answer, but what, do you, what are you putting in? If I am filling my mind with stuff that only helps my sin get a foothold, gives it life, feeds it, then how successful do you think I'm going to be at killing my sin? Not very successful at all. Not only do I need to go on a hunt, but I need to create an environment for my sin where it cannot thrive. I have my, um, you know, my um, planter bed out in the back, and forever, 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 I'm weeding, I'm weeding, I'm weeding. I hate that job. I hate it. You know, and it just, it just keeps coming up. And every time I think I got it, I don't got it. And so I put it around. I'm killing it. Yeah, dead. And it says, yeah, right. The conditions still exist for us to thrive. We got sun. We got water. We got seed. You don't got us at all. So I said, enough of that. And I brought in, I brought in the, the, the thing that covers it, you know, that whatever that is, that weed block. And then I put a bunch of uh, stuff on top of that, whatever that's called. Bark, yeah, I'm having a hard time right now. I don't know why, it was simple stuff. But bark, I put it on there. Boom, now I have, now I've created an environment where those weeds are having a really hard time. You know what? Those guys still bust through, but nothing. I can't believe it. It's like you have no sun, no water. Where? How do you do this? It reminds me of the flesh. You know, I think I got it, and then boom, but you know what? Because the conditions are like they are, they're having a hard time, and I'm enjoying it. And it's much more manageable for my life because I come along, there's one. Oh, yeah? Dead. Not 40. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's no different in the Christian life, guys. It's no different. Not only am I going after it and I'm killing it, but I need to create an environment where it has a hard time thriving. How do you think that works? Fill your minds with the things of God, with the things the Spirit desires. What are you filling your minds with? Do you spend any time during the week other than Sunday on the Word of God or the things of God? See what I'm saying? Lastly, because we got to be done because it's already too late, we should, so you're going to have to just, you know, give us the quick version, brother. All right. Because, you know, I don't ever, I'm, t- I'm a hypocrite in that, aren't I? I'm a hypocrite. I'm working on that. We should develop a habit of repentance. We should develop a habit of repentance. As soon as we are convicted by the spirit of sin, we should immediately repent, confess, and turn from our sin, and purpose in our heart to walk in righteousness, to manifest the fruit of the spirit, like kindness, gentleness, love, and self-control, and then do it. Purpose in our heart, and then do it. And by that, what I mean is, many times we, the spirit is at work in our lives, convicting us of sin, and we don't listen. Or we put it off for another day. Beloved, here's, the, here's what I can tell you. I'm telling myself these things too. These are the things that help me and I have to tell myself again. Develop a habit of repentance. When it comes, I repent. Don't give that sin any time to linger. That's how you put it to death. The spirit convicts you, says this is not 
This is not what I want for your life. You feel that? You know that? Now act on it. Turn from it and turn towards the righteous behavior, whatever that was. Turn towards the righteous behavior, the opposite of that, and, manif- and the, fruits of the, the fruit of the Spirit, let that manifest itself out in your life. So if you're not kind because you're being mean or hurtful, I now need to be kind. Spirit of God, help me now to exercise your kindness in my life. I'm going to become, I'm going to purpose my heart to do it. And every time that unkindness or that hurtful spirit rises up inside of me, I'm going to say, no, that's sin, that's wicked. I don't want anything to do with that. I'm not going to let it linger. I'm not going to let it go a little bit longer. I'm not going to say something I'll get to tomorrow. You understand? These are just ways to get at this. And it's a lifelong process. It's a lifelong process. And as we apply ourselves to killing our sin by the power of the indwelling spirit, you will see success. You will see results. You will see your life becoming more and more free from sin and like Christ. And like Christ. All right, brother, come on up. We're going to close it there.